Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, uh, continuing again uh, this evening as night falls with the, uh, the general, George Washington, the uh, first and only real general as president that we've had. Uh, tonight we're going to try to segue from Canada to New Jersey. George Washington was a brilliant military strategist and studied the hand-drawn maps from his surveys. Through his vast experience in the Ohio Valley, he had an idea of the layout of all the lands. As he studied the maps, he felt that the English warships would sail out toward the navigable harbors of Quebec in Canada and New York Harbor. In those days, the British occupied Canada. The massive ter territory, which we know Canada is huge, provided them with an opportunity to attack, attack the Continental troops in the north. To counter that, Washington dispatched General Richard Montgomery toward Montreal and General Benedict Arnold to Quebec. River vessels were built at the New Hampshire town of St. John's for the Continental troops. General Montgomery and 1,200 men left Fort Ticonderoga in New York, then headed through New Hampshire, where they were met by more colonial recruits from both New Hampshire and Connecticut. The total fighting men was now about 2,800. Montgomery had the support of some Native Americans, primarily the Oneida tribe. Proceeding northwest on the St. Lawrence River, the colonial force confronted the British outside the city of Montreal. The English were supported by Canadian tribes. However, and Montgomery's advanced troops were defeated, Montgomery's backup troops came from behind to stage a counterattack. Luckily for the Continental troops, the English lost their own tribal support when they were persuaded by the colonial allied Oneida tribe to desert. General Charlton and his British regiments were now weakened considerably. To make matters worse, some of his own men deserted Charlton. Montgomery then sent a message to him claiming there were more gun batteries further east on the St. Lawrence ready to assault them. Charlton believed him even though it was a fabrication and the British surrendered. Afterward, the Continentals occupied Montreal and the British went on to Quebec. The Battle of Quebec. Benedict Arnold had left Cambridge, Massachusetts with General Morgan's rifle and squad and was headed through Maine on the Kennebec and Chardy rivers. Travel was extraordinarily difficult as the rivers had rapids in some areas and its troops were encumbered with algae and seaweed for miles. During the river journey, the weather turned bad. Rain and snow pelted their boats, which were flimsily constructed. Consequently, much of the gunpowder got wet the food was also running out, and Arnold had to send some of his own men back. Fortunately, they were able to secure more gunpowder and ammunition from a supportive Frenchman who owned an ironworks facility in the area. General Montgomery had now <coughs> moved northeast from Montreal with a force and joined Arnold. The combined force then attacked Quebec. Charlton was there with his French and English regiments and the two sides engaged in a long, cold conflict. Unfortunately, the colonial forces were significantly outnumbered, 
and forced to surrender. Arnold was wounded severely. Montgomery had not been killed, and General Morgan was taken prisoner. Following that, the Continental Army was afflicted with smallpox and deemed unfit for service. It was now 1776. The British, at that point, were inflicted with smallpox. With, with, his, with his more capable troops, General Howe regrouped and sent word to England that he needed more reinforcements to replace the sick and dead among his troops. In the meantime, Washington had the same problem. He needed not only reinforcements, but new recruits from the colonies. He sensed that Howe would be targeting New York next and sent out for General Henry Lee to raise and organize new military contingents from New York. Washington then pulled his forces out of Boston and had them march to New York. There he had fortifications built on South Manhattan Island and a few on Western Long Island. While doing that, he had his generals and officers train new recruits. When General Howe and his British reinforcements arrived, they had as many as 32,000 redcoats. By the time Washington had his troops trained, he had 23,000 soldiers in that area, 10,000 less than the British. The meeting of the Continental Congress of 1776. In the spring, Washington was called to another session of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia to demonstrate the military's progress. General Washington arrived, accompanied by four battalions, a rifle battalion, and a light horse brigade, and three artillery companies. Washington hoped that his showing would motivate new recruits to join up. The members of the Congress had many questions, but were extremely impressed with the rapidity of his response and the disciplined appearance of these troops. The Declaration of Independence During the first months of 1776, the Continental Congress drew up a rough draft for a Declaration of Independence. However, this initial document was weakly worded and came across like a Declaration of Colonial Rights. Many delegates noted that, and had the delegate, Richard Lee, at a resolution announcing in very clear terms that the colonies were going to declare full independence from England. Without that, they would not be able to get foreign assistance from France. The new resolution was strongly worded and meant that the colonists aimed and were armed with conflict that wasn't merely just a rebellion. Predictably, Lee's resolution met with quite the opposition. After much debate, it was approved and revised draft of the Declaration of Independence was again reapproved. Young Thomas Jefferson had shown such eloquence of pen that he was recruited to write the final document. He had to rush his task and it took just 17 days for him to complete the Declaration of Independence. The delegates, delegates at the Congress needed authorization from their colonial assemblies to vote upon the Declaration. By July, the delegates were given the authorization to vote. It took a while for all the colonies to agree to it. The colonies who hesitated were pressured by others to sign it. And by July, the vote was 12 to 1 in favor of independence, with New York abstaining. Although the Declaration of Independence wasn't signed by 12 colonies at the same time, July 4, 1776, 
was the date designated for a final draft of its signing. The reason for New York's abstention was the fact that all of the delegates of New York's colonial government weren't present. The city was suddenly under British attack at the moment. George Washington rapidly leaves. When he heard that the British had entered New York, George Washington rushed, rushed out of the meeting hall. He had fortified New York already and left his capable commanders there to man the fortifications, but needed to develop the new strategy. Most of the fortifications were in Manhattan because it was the primary entrance to the two deep rivers, the Hudson and the East Rivers. Those waterways could handle many ships with deep keels. Washington was shocked when he arrived when he discovered that the British had attacked Long Island instead of Manhattan because most of his fortifications were in Manhattan. Nevertheless, he moved his troops over there to confront them. The Battle of Long Island, 1776. Unfortunately, Washington was misinformed about the massive numbers of British troops that General Howe had come under his command. Howe had about 20,000 troops, but Washington had thought he only had 8,500. From the Brooklyn Heights at the western end of Long Island, the Continental Forces had armaments in place. There were several passes there that led through the heights and provided access to the East River. The colonial troops on the island were able to block entry to all but one pass, the Jamaica Pass. They didn't have sufficient forces available to protect that one. In need of a guide, the British commander held a rifle to the head of a, a resident and threatened his family unless the man would lead them through the Jamaica Pass. Fearing for his family, William Howard reluctantly cooperated. After the British moved through the pass, they penetrated the colonial forces and gunfire erupted. With their superior numbers, the British defeated the colonists. The Continental Army lost about 300 men, but the British lost only 64. Washington realized that his losses were building up and assigned one of his generals to lead boats from the north shore of Long Island back to Manhattan, hoping to prevent the British from entering the East River. It was the middle of the night, but his general was able to evacuate the survivors from Long Island and escort them safely into Manhattan, totally unobserved. Historians consider this nighttime action one of Washington's most remarkable strategies. And I think, uh, I, I think the, the, if I recall, the man was Glover. Glover, um, he was a, a marble header, and he engineered the, uh, the evacuation, and his men were fishermen from the Marblehead, Massachusetts area. Anyway, the whole expanse of water is very visible from the shore even today. Assassination Conspiracy New York was inundated with Tories who supported Britain. On Long Island, and particularly in Manhattan, they met at taverns and dis even dispatched men in into Manhattan and Long Island to prevent the progress of Washington and his men. These taverns were usually in the basements of hotels. The walls were, very, were made of very darkened stones, and the rooms were dark and dank. In the night, they crouched together and muttered their conspiratorial plots and plans. One of the plots was hatched by Thomas Hickey, an Irish recruit who guarded Washington himself. Hickey had secured money from the former British governor and bought weapons and ammunition from a Tory-affiliated gunsmith. The colonials, however, 
heard about this nefarious plot. The New York militia arrested Hickey and delivered him to the hands of the Continental officials. Hickey was court-martialed and convicted on charges of mutiny, sedation, and correspondence with the enemy. They sentenced Hickey to be hanged, and Washington approved of the sentence. The execution took place in the Bowery on the tip of Manhattan. Washington's Informant It was now December 1776 and was one of the coldest winters on record. General Washington's troops had suffered demoralizing failures in New York, and his troops were very weary. Washington stopped at Fort Lee, which stands on the New Jersey side, just across from Upper Manhattan in New Jersey. And this will be around where the George Washington Bridge is today. He had come there specifically to see a man by the name of John Honeyman, whom he met in Philadelphia while attending one of the sessions of the Continental Congress. Honeyman has served on the British side in actions near the St. Lawrence River, but was no longer loyal to the British. He told Washington that he had moved to Pennsylvania and now stood firmly with the colonists in their struggle for independence. At Fort Lee, Washington proposed to Honeyman that he act as a double agent for the colonies. Honeyman readily agreed he had the perfect cover for the, for the ploy because he was discharged from the British Army in good standing. When he returned to his home in Grigstown, New Jersey, Honeyman spread the story that he favored the Tories. It wasn't unusual to find many Tory supporters in New Jersey, but Honeyman made his position well known. His openness about his political leanings made him sound quite sincere when he met Englishmen and colonial Tories in the course of his occupation as a weaver. Because of his political leanings, though, patriots raided his house, and he was forced to flee to New Brunswick, New Jersey. At his new shop, John Honeyman continued to trade with the English and ferreted out what information he could find from them about the British actions in New Jersey. He discovered that they had set up a garrison in Trenton, manned by the Hessians, who were British mercenaries. Honeyman then traveled west, made his way across the Delaware River, and relayed his report to Washington who was then in Pennsylvania. In a ruse, Washington had him imprisoned at his headquarters as a Tory, and latter let him escape. The plan was for Honeyman to provide the British Hessians with misinformation. After pretending he escaped from Washington, Honeyman went to Trenton and told the Hessians that the Continental Army was totally demoralized and had no plans to attack Trenton. Honeyman also related the story about his imprisonment, which provided him with a, a cover story. Washington then planned to surprise attack on the garrison. Honeyman was instructed to continue with his crusade and maintain the appearance of being a Tory to prevent any recriminations against his family in Great Britain. It worked well. Historians have debated the veracity of the story, but there is some evidence that it may be true. The winter encampment. There was much sickness among Washington's men, and the brutality of winter was very trying. After establishing some redoubts and more small bases along the Pennsylvania shores of the Delaware River, he and his men encamped there. General Howe, in command of the British units, held fortresses and small bases on the New Jersey side of the Delaware River. The Battle of Trenton. 
Plans for the attack of the Battle of Trenton were top secret. Washington planned on sailing over the river just north of Trenton at twilight and create a three-pronged attack. Number one, one division would attack Trenton from the northeast led by Sullivan and Washington. Number two, a second division led by Green would attack Trenton from the northwest. Number three, a divisionary force led by General Codwalder would move south, cross the Delaware River, and move toward Bordentown. In Washington's papers, there is a letter written to General Cadwalder which says, Christmas Day at night, one hour before day, is the time fixed for an attempt on Trenton. For heaven's sake, keep this to yourself, as the discovery it may prove fatal to us. The crossing was difficult because it was sleeting heavily and the river was icy. Ice on the Delaware is quite deceiving, as it isn't always as thick as it appears. Upon his arrival, General Cadwalder discovered that he had to delay until the ice was thicker. The river needed to be frozen over so his men could drag the heavy artillery pieces across it without a mishap. It was now December 26, 1776, and the Hessian officers were still frolicking at their Christmas festivities at the house of Sir Hunt when a messenger arrived and raced in to give a note to Colonel Rawl. The message contained vital information about Washington's unexpected arrival. Instead of reading it, however, Rawl foolishly thrust the letter into his pocket. A vital mistake. One of Washington's smaller units attacked Rawl and his men at the Hunt House, where he was dining. Most of the Hessians were drunk, and they were all shot, including Colonel Rawl. At their garrison nearby, the Americans led by Green stormed in, alarming the rest of the soldiers up against the walls with their bayonets, while Washington placed a cannon on the street outside to discourage escape. Thousands were taken prisoner. Washington always tried to treat prisoners of war fairly. With reference to Washington, one of those prisoners later said, there was a smiling expression on the continents when he spoke and that won our affection and respect for him. A letter from the Continental Congress, December 27, 1776. A committee of the Congress met to discuss the progress of the war. They were thrilled to hear of Washington's success at Trenton on Christmas night and endowed him with military powers that seemed almost tyrannical. Although he was flattered with their well-intended comments, he responded, I find Congress has done me with honor to entrust me with powers of the military capacity of the highest nature and almost unlimited extent. Instead of thinking of myself freed from civil obligations from this mark of their confidence, I shall constantly bear in mind that, as the sword was the last resort for the preservation of our liberties, so it ought to be the first thing laid aside when those liberties are firmly established. A Year of Hardship The year was now 1777. Many hardships were endured by Washington and the Continental Army. Although some of the delegates of the Continental Congress were wavering in their support, 
there was still as much support for the revolution among the patriots. This was a year of many changes, but marked the turning point in the American Revolution. The Battle of Princeton The English had a massive garrison at Princeton, which Washington knew had to be attacked. There were also regiments of British troops under General Charles Marlwood along the post road that leads to Princeton. From Bordentown, General Codwalder needed to move his forces and artillery northward toward Princeton. The ground was now quite hard in January of 1777, and the heavy equipment could easily be moved, even through the woods. Washington was close to Princeton and needed to have his troops move in a northeastern direction. Another colonial battalion was already near Princeton under Hugh Mercer. The English under General Cornwallis were further south on the post road between Trenton and Princeton. However, like an old fox, Washington stealthily bypassed Cornwallis and then planned to join up with Mercer at Princeton. General Cadwalder would be there slightly behind Washington. His instructions were to cross a small bridge at Stony Point and destroy it after he passed over it in, to- in order to prevent Cornwallis from getting there. Mallhood then attacked Brigadier General Hugh Mercer and decided to engage him. Mercer moved in, but the British overran Mercer's smaller unit. Mercer was fatally wounded in the attack. Many of his men were new recruits and tried to flee. Washington then arrived and rushed in to help. Seeing Mercer's fleeing troops, he rode back and forth in front of the frightened soldiers, encouraging them to fight to fight on. When General Cadwalder arrived, shortly thereafter, he rounded up the stragglers. The combined Continental forces were now able to repel the British at Princeton. Washington and his men chased the British into a downtown area of Princeton and found the British soldiers holed up at Nassau Hall just off campus grounds of the University of New Jersey, later to be called Princeton University. General Sullivan, who was helped who helped Washington at Trenton, later arrived. He was a very persuasive man and told the frightened English soldiers that Nassau Hall was no one coming to reinforce them. The British at Nassau Hall then surrendered. Washington had originally planned to move on New Brunswick next. However, he saw that his men were hungry and weary, so he decided to move them to higher ground further north where they could rest and recover. Needed supplies, needed inoculations. Washington moved moved his troops to winter in Morristown, New Jersey, and set up a fortification on a grassy knoll overlooking acres of territory where he could watch out for British troops. He called it Fort Nonsense. While in Morristown, Washington stayed at the Ford Mansion. His wife Martha actually traveled up to join him there. Five aides of camp stayed there also. Those men included Alexander Hamilton, who helped Washington draft documents for the military purposes and for communication with the Continental Congress, of which Hamilton himself was a delegate. Washington's men camped on the grounds. Many of them were very ill from smallpox. Although the smallpox vaccine wasn't fully developed until 1793, there was a more primitive method available. After watching so many of his soldiers suffer and many die, 
Washington insisted on having mass inoculations for his armies. He frantically sent out messages to his commanding officers to send doctors into Morristown and into Philadelphia, where other Continental troops were encamped. The program was successfully executed. Consequently, there were as many as 11 hospitals constructed in the Northeast to not only inoculate his troops, but also to care for the injured. Although Washington was able to put up a program of inoculations, his men were suffering from cold of the winter and their clothing was in ragged condition. During the earlier years of the American Revolution, an enormously wealthy man from Philadelphia, Robert Morris, was providing a great deal of financing for the war efforts. Washington himself planned to move his troops back into Pennsylvania, and he made it a point to meet with Robert Morris, whom he kept and knew personally. Washington weeps. Washington entered Morris's study and asked Morris if he could set or borrow some money for the war effort. Morris was very upset when he heard that plea because he wanted to help but couldn't. He had used up all this credit and could do nothing at that point in time. According to an account related in a letter from the cleric in 1777, it said that Washington covered his face with his hands and burst into weeping, severe weeping. As for he sat there sobbing, the tears trickled through his fingers and dropping down his wrist onto papers below. Battle of the Brandywine. In September 11th, 1777, while the Brandywine Valley in the southern area of Pennsylvania, Washington was informed by the colonists that General Howe was in that area. Washington then designated that valley for his next encounter. Washington knew he needed to continue the war after having had substantial victories in Trenton and Princeton. Although the troops under Washington, Knox, Sterling, and Green numbered about 14,000, and the British under Howe and Cornwallis about 15,000, Washington had his own continental forces marched toward the wide, rapidly flowing Brandywine Creek, just around Wilmington, Delaware. In an ambitious move, General Cornwallis and Howe marched eastward to meet them head-on. Cornwallis attacked the right flank of Sullivan's troops, then circled around and caught the other Continental troops by surprise. The Continentals didn't have enough time to ready and rally and counterattack. Knox and Green's forces were bayoneted and bombarded by the British Grenadiers. The Continental forces consistently shot into the British divisions, but the action proved to be quite too weak. Outmaneuver near Philadelphia. General Howe regularly tried to deceive Washington as to where he and his troops were destined. Howe had moved his vessels out of the New York Harbor and had them all sail south to the port of Perth Amboy. His ground troops moved westward on land toward Edison in central New Jersey. Unbeknown to Washington, Howe also moved some of his naval vessels south along the New Jersey coast. Some British vessels circled around the tip of New Jersey around Cape May and headed north into the Delaware River. He then set the remaining vessels southward along the Atlantic coast. By the end of the summer, George Washington wasn't exactly sure where Howe was planning to go next. Howe, a very optimistically ambitious military commander, 
set up confusing and elaborate plans to control, number one, Philadelphia, number two, Albany, New York, and its environments, number three, the Hudson River outlet from Manhattan, number four, Newport, Rhode Island, number five, Virginia and South Carolina. When Washington heard from his spies and how went out to sea at the southern tip of New Jersey, it was too late for him to get there on time. Capture Philadelphia. The Continental Congress became alarmed when they saw the proximity of the British troops. The rapidity relocated further west to, to York, Pennsylvania. Many of the colonists fled Philadelphia in July of 1777. Howe sent two divisions up the Delaware River and marched into Philadelphia unopposed and was greeted by Tory-leaning Pennsylvanians. While there, the British were short of supplies, so they stole cattle, horses, wood, clothing, and food. There was looting everywhere, and the British wounded were housed in the homes of the colonists. Patriots were thrown in jail. Soon the colonists had little food and clothing at all. There were two small continental forts on the Delaware River, and they attempted to dislodge the British. However, they didn't have enough men available lost control of these forts. While Washington was on his way, he and his Continental troops were out of food and supplies as well. He sent an urgent message to the Continental Congress saying, Three days successfully we have been destitute of bread. Two days we have been entirely without meat. The men must be supplied or they cannot be commanded. Because of that, Washington couldn't do much at the time to repel the British from the city. After the humiliation of having lost Philadelphia, some of the colonists lost their faith in Washington. Divisions and jealousy erupted within the governments of each state, and early historian Wayne Whipple wrote in the winter of 1777, There were 13 states, and each of these states sent troops into the field, but all of the states were jealous of one another. The members of Congress agreed on only one thing, that it was not prudent to give the army too much power. It is true that they had once given Washington large authority, but they were very much afraid that somehow the army would rule the country after the war. A pseudo-conspiracy. After the capture of Philadelphia, several officers in the Continental Army attempted to have Washington removed as commander-in-chief. History has labeled this act as the Conway Cabal, as it was masterminded by General Thomas Conway. He conspired with several other men, including Thomas Mifflin, a congressional aide, and General Horatio Gates. They wrote a letter to the Continental Congress after some debates among members of the Congress, the members ultimately refused to remove Washington from his command. Gates apologized for his role in the affair. Mifflin was later accused of embezzlement and resigned in shame. Washington's loyal general, General John Cadwalder, was so furious about Conway that he challenged him to a duel. Although Conway was shot, he recovered and fled to France, where he spent the remainder of his life. Battle of Saratoga. While Howe was attempting to play a cat-and-mouse chase with Washington, the British general John, Johnny Burgoyne was steadily marching south from Quebec in the fall of 1777. Howe had planned that Burgoyne 
would take control of New York. Burgoyne had about 7,000 men, but called for reinforcements when he discovered that Washington was moving north to meet him with 13,000 men. Although the soldiers were tired and hungry, they maintained their steadfast loyalty to Washington and the cause for independence. As for the British, Howe was supposed to reinforce General Burgoyne, but neglected to do so. Instead, General Howe joined the troops in Philadelphia and never sent any aid. Howe spent a couple of months there before withdrawing his forces from Philadelphia. The British lost a lot of men at Saratoga, and Johnny Burgoyne was then forced to move back and encamped at Bemis Heights nearby. The Continental forces then closed into Bemis Heights under the command of Benedict Arnold, the man who later betrayed the American cause. He excelled in his actions there. After the Continental troops destroyed or captured the redoubts and defenses at Bemis Heights and in Saratoga proper, General Johnny Burgoyne had no choice but to surrender. Saratoga represented the turning point in the American Revolution. General Howe resigned shortly after he had an episode at Saratoga. The Wicked Winter at Valley Forge Washington encamped with his troops in the winter of 1777 at Valley Forge, just northwest of Philadelphia. He and his men had built a small village of log cabins there. Every cabin had a fireplace in the back of it for supplies. He sent out his men who scoured the countryside, begging, begging normal colonists for blankets, foods, and clothing. Disease spread among the men, and some died there. Washington himself lived in the same kind of quarters his soldiers had to and shared all of their hardships. He kept encouraging them and complimented them for their heroism. One of Washington's generals, Light Horse Harry Lee, and his men were encamped at an outpost in the distance. One night he sneaked into a small enemy encampment nearby, harassed their foraging party, and raided the British storehouse. Then he raced back to Valley Forge with arms, supplies, and clothing. It was a godsend. In later years, Washington wrote Lee a letter in which he said, I offer my sincere thanks to the whole of your gallant party and assure them that no one felt pleasure more sensibly or rejoiced more sincerely than your affectionate George Washington. Training Baron von Steuben, a Prussian who moved into the colonies and volunteered to service in the Revolution. He had extensive military training and initiated a program for the troops at Valley Forge. This was not only extremely helpful, but also gave the men an opportunity to warm their bodies through exercise. It increased their confidence significantly and boosted their morale. Even though he spoke very poor English, von Steuben knew how to swear. This amused the troops greatly, and he became very popular from his swearing. Today, an annual parade is held in the honor in New York, and there are numerous statues of him in the city and the surrounding metropolitan area. His home was in River Edge, New Jersey, and is a national historic site. The Marquis de Lafayette In 1776, the elderly statesman, Benjamin Franklin, had sent to France to attempt to get their assistance in the American Revolution. That was 
one issue that Patrick Hendrick presented to the Continental Congress, and it proved to be helpful, a helpful contribution to the Revolutionary War. During Dr. Franklin's visit, the well-known French Marquis de Lafayette was alerted about the struggles of the new nation. He became a staunch supporter of the revolution. Even before France concluded that their debate about Franklin's appeal, Lafayette left there with funds and supplies in his own custom-made Corvette sailing vessel for America. He joined General George Washington at Valley Forge. Washington was extremely fond of him, and Lafayette became his confidant throughout his entire life. Thus, the Marquis de Lafayette was, had vast military experience and was an invaluable addition and boosted morale throughout the Valley Forge campaign. This encampment lasted for a total of six months. The year 1778 was a disruptive year in terms of political divisions due to the Conway Camel and the political infighting on the part of delegates to the Continental Congress. In addition, the country's financial resources were deleteriously affected by an unexpected devaluation of the continental currency. There was also mismanagement, deliberate and otherwise. Among some of the colonists who were in charge of the providing provisions for the Continental Army, in addition, at Valley Forge, some of Washington's own officers were disruptive. One of Washington's generals, Charles Lee, even argued openly with Washington and sometimes even disobeyed orders.